I know that many people find that we are at a moment of great distress in the world, but we also have never had as many possibilities of compassionate action as today. There has never been such awareness of how much we can come together to create these different perspectives of a new life. And also having the humility of listening to other voices that possibly have other solutions that can contribute and creating seriously a community that is inclusive, that is truly diverse. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with contemplative scholar and indigenous activist Yuria Salidwin. Yuria's research focuses on self-transcendence in indigenous contemplative traditions, with a particular emphasis on what she calls an ethics of belonging. She's worked across many sectors, including at the UN, to bring indigenous ways of knowing into conversation with Western approaches. I spoke with Yuria over the summer, and we had, as you'll hear, a lovely kind of spiraling conversation. Yuria begins briefly in her native language and then speaks about the importance of keeping these languages alive. She describes her roots in Mexico and her lineage of mystics, healers, and explorers of both mind and the lands. We talk about contemplative frameworks within her tradition, and she shares some of her experiences integrating indigenous ideas into Western culture. Yuria also reflects on what can happen to contemplative practice when it's translated into an individualistic society like the United States, and the possibilities for contemplative practice to open our awareness to interdependence. She describes the concepts of kin relationality and ecological belonging, and shares approaches for coming together across differences. Specifically, she speaks about bridging and the need for safety in these spaces. That takes us into an interesting discussion about the differences between indigenous languages and English, which reflect the different underlying conceptual structures in those traditions and cultures. And we end with her reflections on the possibilities for indigenous contemplative science. And Yuria closes with one of her beautiful and inspiring poems. Woven throughout this conversation is a call to shift to a more inclusive way of knowing, one that embodies our interconnectedness. There's a lot more from Yuria in the show notes, including a link to her fantastic essay that was just published for Mind and Life's new Insights Project. I wanted to share that resource in general with you as well. This site is a collection of 18 multimedia essays that offer a deep dive into the heart of contemplative science. The authors include many guests from this podcast, so if you like this show, I think you'll really enjoy the content there. I have to say, as we were developing the project, I realized that I don't think there's really anything else like this out there in terms of a written resource covering the breadth and depth of contemplative science, including its core concepts and its applications and relevance for us today. You can find all of those essays, including Uria's, at mindandlife.org insights. Okay, I hope this conversation brings some inspiration to you today. I'm so happy to share with you Yuria Salidwin. I am so pleased to welcome Yuria Salidwin today. Thanks so much, Yuria, for joining us. 
You just heard my indigenous Maya Celta language. And I'm introducing myself. Well, thank you so much, dear Wendy, for the invite. Uh, thank you so much for uh, mine and life. And you may wonder why I speak my language. Uh, and I, I use it as a statement of awareness of the loss of um, cultural legacies that we are going through around the world that goes along the loss of biodiversity. Uh, as you know, that we, we go through a massive extinction, uh, both of biodiversity and cultures, as we lose one indigenous language every two weeks. So speaking my language is a statement for planetary health, you know, for how we need to revitalize these traditions, because with them, it's all the wisdoms that can help us in the challenges that we are facing today. So thank you for allowing me to do that and bring these uh, beautiful sounds to our Mind and Life family. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing that in. Um, and I, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of... Uh, of course, the indigenous perspective and, and what is needed now. But first, I would love to hear a little bit of your personal story and background and how it is you ended up doing this kind of work. Mm, well, I love telling this story. Uh, it's almost like a mythical origin story for me. And I grew up in the family lands called El Paraíso Cuelha. So Cuelha means land of flowing waters or wonderland of flowing waters. Um, El Paraíso, then, of course, it's the paradise. No? So it's like the wonderland of flowing waters. And this was in the highlands of Chiapas. My, my lineage is um, from the Maya Teltal peoples. So there are a wide array of Maya peoples all over the Yucatan Peninsula and then all the way down to uh, Central America. And then I also have lineage from the Nahua peoples from the Central Valley that goes all the way also as well to the Central America. So my family is a family of mystics, healers, and explorers, both of the mind, the soul, and the lands in, in those areas. So I like to think of myself, I, I happily uh, say that I'm equal parts uh, mystic healer, warrioress, and witch, because I am also uh, a kind of activist, and um, but also very in tune with uh, spiritual life and contemplative living, um, caring also of how we create our sense of identity, how do we belong you know, to uh, our communities, how do we create possibilities of transformation and healing, uh, and then all that within a, a place of intention, uh, creating, that's what contemplative practice is to, to my view, you know, like a, an intention of, of a goal that benefits the larger community of beings. So I learned a lot of that from my lineage and from my lands. I, I always, always start a, uh, my my talks with honoring the lands because without our mother earth there is no life no there is no there is no community and then of course without the community there is no me right 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I honor those lands and then also my ancestors because my ancestors are the ones that transmitted all this wisdom, all, all this being a caring, loving member of this larger community. And so I think my coming together to the contemplative living or contemplative life was through the lands and through my ancestors from a very, very early age. Of course, we didn't call it contemplative living. (laughs) That was something that I learned later. But it was very much like that. It was to observe what experience is, how I am being part of it, how I intentionally create the responses or or the impact, being accountable of that as well, and um, being very careful of what I'm bringing to the world. Um, I think part of of it is realize what is our part, how what is also our purpose and our responsibility, being part of a larger group uh, that is responsive to you, makes you very, very responsible, makes you become really accountable of what you're bringing and uh, and also very caring, very mindful of your every action. And then that, of course, comes from uh, an intentional experience, you know, like what is the feeling that is coming and how can I then express it in a way that's more conducive to caring and careful interactions with with the community. So Mm. that's a little gist. Uh, I, I would say also that my beautiful grandma and my my grandpa were very caring members of the world. They would love um, to tend the land. I remember almost being a practice to walk barefoot uh, on the skin of Mother Earth. So to be very mindful of how you're being in touch uh, with that great cradle. And um, that creates a sense of being part of, of this community and also of being enveloped you know, by, a, by a larger environment that's being loving and caring to you too. You know? So it's like, how are you responding? And so my grandma was a medicine woman and um, my great-grandma was also a medicine woman and my great-great-grandpa and all the way down to the roots of the earth. And so that that brings such responsibility you know, of how you're eliciting flourishing for others you know, or care for others, um, well-being for others. In the indigenous perspective, the sense of healing responds to a sense of healing of the environment. So there's no such thing of individual health It has to be a planetary health. Mm. So whenever I hear in the West that the medicine system focuses on healing the symptoms of disease, but not the environmental causes or the origins, it's very confusing because if the environment continues being harsh and hostile and creates that imbalance or that over... uh, hyper-arousing of um, the the senses, no? Then it will just continue creating imbalance and and there's no possibility of 
being a healthy member, you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's bringing fruit to others, you know, giving, becoming uh, life for others. You know, there's so much in there that I, I would like to follow up on. The way you describe kind of your childhood or just the culture in which you were raised, you, you talked about bringing intention and being really aware of your actions and the impacts of the actions. And you shared the way of walking on the earth very carefully or, or with some awareness. So that's an example. You said it was almost a practice. Were there other kinds of practices, or maybe that's too formal of a word, it feels like this is just the way that things were. So was it more like that, where it's just this is the culture, everyone's kind of imbuing these mindsets? Um, or are there more systematic practices that are also observed? Yeah. And I will also say before I respond, dear Wendy, that we indigenous peoples have a way of being that's very spiral, you know? so mm. it's very non-linear. So we tend to be <laughs> very broad in in our conversations and keep returning to the to the different topics that appear. So nothing is an island, right, or an atomic being. It's all related. So. Conversations are very rich sometimes and not also uh, direct, but that's a beautiful way of exploring not only how our mind works, uh, how the world works, um, but also different ways of reaching maybe knowledge or wisdom or uh, the way that we understand the world. And so in terms of contemplative practice or contemplative living, because that's the thing um, with an indigenous perspective, is not only, I mean, the practice is the everyday life, right? Mm -hmm. It's how do we relate with everything we do with that intention. And so I'll give you just something, um, just a, a little gist of it. And, and that is also something that I bring uh, in my talks. One of the greatest ways of relating with that uh, contemplation manifests in the calendric systems for the Maya tradition. Mm. So there are two calendars. It's, there's a solar calendar, very similar to the Gregorian that we, we follow. And then there's a lunar calendar that is the one that uh, dictates ceremonial uh, times or rituals or agricultural. And it's also very related to how cycles of uh, nature work. Mm. So I'm not going to go very into detail because they are very complex calendars, as you imagine, but they change every year. Uh -huh. There's never the same, you know, so uh, today, I'm just talking about what, what the day is today, and it is the day Buluk Etznab, which is 11 Obsidian. If you think, I don't know, if, uh, maybe your audience do, do not know what obsidian is. It's a kind of volcanic glass that's very, very sharp. And it used to be um, used for creating arrows or flints. And so it's this double edge, uh, very sharp, that I would say it's a kind of very discriminate awareness. You know? So like consciousness, like mindfulness, clarity uh -huh. of how we relate to the world. And so in, in a day like this, the day 11 speaks of that non-dual part, you know, of like we, we may see all the, all the ways that human mind tends to uh, 
label or make sense of the world by creating dualities, right? But much of the practice is understanding how these apparent confrontations actually are part of one same system, right? Um, and much of the indigenous perspective is about returning to that sense of balance. So this flint is about cutting edge from all the projections that we the mind makes, right? All the maybe the social conditionings or the cultural ways that we uh, place on things or in a phenomena and realizing that it is all a part of a of an experience that is being created, right? So like a day like this uh, is very auspicious for healing. Hmm. I once spoke about my family of, of healers and mm-hmm. uh, and medicine people, curanderos. Uh, and because it is a, a, a time for well-being. You know? So when we start realizing that opposites are actually coming together you know, and that there's a conciliation of apparent uh, conflict, it opens for a possibility of communication, Right of really dealing with whatever is happening in uh, experience or in perception, so in the labeling, and it helps for then re-educating uh, the, the mind, you know, like dissolving all these perceptions that may be not conducive to flourishing or to, um, or to conversing or to collaboration or cooperation uh, that keeps us isolated. You know, and then start cutting through all of that uh, so that we can come back together to a sense of clarity and flourishing, right? And the unity. So that number 11, it's like the neutrality, no? like the non-duality. Like there's no good or bad It's because mm. that's the label, right? It's like, um, but rather we can find a sense of balance, a sacred balance um, that brings together a kind of ancestral time, it said, you know, like the teachings from the past, from the lineages, from the lands are informing our action to this day, right? But the action that we are doing now is then going to be fruit for life of others in the future. So the, actually all of these times come to this day, to this moment. Mm. So all the more importance that what we are creating, may it be intentional and for the benefit of the, of the community. And one of the things that I love about the indigenous perspective is that we are not a community of humans only. As you know, for, for a few years, there has been so much talk about human flourishing, right? The science of human flourishing. But then again, no, it's going back to the systems of health, there's no such human flourishing if there's not planetary flourishing, if there's not environmental flourishing. So fortunately now the indigenous movement is pushing for this conservation, you know, for this environmental movement at a global level, for uh, caring for the earth, you know, for caring for other than human community, you know, getting out of this narrow way of seeing, oh, it's only me or it's only us in groups of either country or uh, ethnicities or whatever, and, and breaking with that obsidian flint 
cutting with discriminate awareness all these labels and returning to a sense of how we are beings in a larger community that is responsive to us and to whom we owe a responsible action and intention. just spoke so beautifully about the perspective of dualism and kind of separation that certainly in Western culture is the dominant viewpoint. I mean, it's so dominant as to be assumed, you know, it's not questioned often. Um, and then bringing these more non-dual and seeing the interdependence um, and the kind of connections between all beings and, and the whole planet to the extent that those views are at odds, how have you gone about and what's been your experience in trying to offer that perspective, the indigenous perspective, um, into a context and a philosophy and a culture that may not be primed to accept it? How does it land? And I'm just curious of your experience. Yeah, uh, well, it's a long story. Uh, which started also very early. Um, so I, I was born and raised in, within an indigenous ontology, you know, like way of being, and also epistemology because like a way of learning or knowing. Um, but I was educated in a colonialist Western system. So when I moved to study, I got a scholarship at a very early age. Um, I was very soon shown that I was different. So I was othered and discriminated very hostily. Um, it was the first time that I started realizing that my identity, the way I look, was perceived as negative in those contexts of Western uh, education and uh, systems. But back at home, I was embraced. You know? So I had these very different experiences of, of being in a group. So I started questioning from very early, you know, from my, uh, my very early experiences of where is this coming from? What creates these kinds of ideas? Uh, so I think at that moment, I started realizing how much indigenous people's identities are Othered, you know? and even uh, even from the very definition of who indigenous are speaks about otherness. Uh, it's a, it's a, another long story about how uh, indigenous peoples came to be named, but in the definition is belonging to a land or have a historical continuity to a land that previous to a colonization or invasive process. Mm. You know? So there's already anothering right there, you know, in the mere definition. Uh, and unfortunately, with time, there was 
also an internalization of that otherness. So for a long time, indigenous peoples wouldn't even admit their indigeneity because that would put them in a position of probably being othered or not having access to health or education. And uh, then that opens an even larger conversation about the lack of access uh, uh, and well-being for indigenous peoples at the global level. Uh, starting to be a little spiral now, but we will return to that. Um, to the point that in some countries in the world, indigenous peoples have as much as 20 years less of life expectancy mm. than non-indigenous. And at the global level, indigenous peoples have the least access to education, to safety, uh, to dignified living, etc. Uh, so that kind of discrimination I started feeling really, really early. Uh, and then also started realizing that this is created by a culture and by a mind, you know, by a social system. And... I started committing as well to keeping those traditions, revitalizing, reclaiming those traditions, and bringing that systems to an equal standing with, with other systems. As you know, our contemplative world was based on Western translations of mainly Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist practice, other Theravada Buddhist traditions as well, but mainly Buddhist practice texts. And, but when translated to Western systems, they were also secularized. And that has been important for the West, not the secularization of practice. But that also had some consequences, you know, that the collective origins of the practices were lost because they started taking the personality of the West, which is profoundly individualist. And so some of all of these practices started focusing on the well-being of the individual, right? On concentration or lowering blood pressure, better sleep, uh, lowering stress and all, all of which are surely very beneficial but we are missing the very core, you know, because we are still in a way perpetuating the same system. It is very hard uh, for one that is immersed in a system of, of discrimination or of othering to realize that these practices are, are happening, mm -hmm. you know, especially for the dominant section of the, of the system, because they all continue what they are used to. For the one that has been othered, so for in this case, uh, indigenous peoples or my own experience, we feel that, you know, the internalization is a kind of perpetuation. So yes, uh, we may not be aware of that, but the contemplative practice precisely tries to focus on that. You no, know? it's like that flint that we talked about, you know, that obsidian again, like, why am I responding to this phenomenon or to this experience in this way? And where is this story coming from? Where is the origin of this? You know? uh, where are all these labels you know, starting? And, um, and then we start seeing that the ones that 
create, let's say, science or let's say the, uh, the way the world is are the dominant sectors of society, right? So how do we start changing those systems of oppression? You know? Well, by practice by using that discriminative awareness and cutting into those stories, you know, realizing that those are constructs, constructs by a system of oppression that was set up to benefit a specific group. You know? But in order to dismantle that, those stories, composed them, those stories, you know, then we need to go back to the very raw materials right? Which is the stories, the stories that create this. That's the moment that we start realizing, okay, there is an othering, but there's also then, if we know that these stories are a construct, that, that means that we can dismantle them, compose them, and then use them to recreate new stories of intention, of compassion, of kindness, of awe, of reverence, and of community. No? And I, I feel that's precisely the power of contemplative practice. It's not only about, oh, no, I increase my concentration and lower my stress level. All of that is important, yes. But only because it creates the possibility for then setting up a place of safety in which all of us are able to share stories, to contribute to pieces of wisdom, you know, to find solutions together for the challenges that we are facing. We are at a moment in which the, the challenges that the world goes through are not anymore of just some groups, right? We are all in this together. The whole of Mother Earth is calling loudly for our awareness you know, and for shifts in the way we behave and the way we relate. And part of changing that, part of going back to a sense of balance or equilibrium at a global planetary level is by dismantling all these obstacle stories that keep perpetuating systems of othering, othering of humans, othering of other than human beings, as we, we relate with, uh, with our sibling uh, animals and plants and fungi and fish and, you know. And in the end, is by othering our own Mother Earth. We ourselves are making us orphans when our whole home is calling us to come back, you know, to belong. So there is this term nowadays, uh, solastalgia, it was created by a, uh, an Australian scholar that uh, speaks of, you know, nostalgia, you know, like the missing home, homesickness. But solastalgia is being worried or distressed or anguished by being home, mm. so by, your, by the state of your home. So right now, as we see, as we face uh, the climate urgency, there is that distress that's happening because our whole home, as uh, it's been said, is in trouble. 
right? So we are even more called to uh, to awareness, and I feel that the possibilities of contemplative movements to bring awareness you know, of how we can come together, contribute, collaborate, return to places of kindness, return to places of reverence for the whole of the community, for the environmental community or planetary community is great. But we have to then also transform our own contemplative fields because as they also take the personalities of the cultures that are adopting them, those personalities also need to change as we as healing happens when we realize uh, what's creating the problem and then finding balance to it. And it's always a process of becoming, right? We never totally reach that place. You know, it's always a constant practice, a constant day-to-day living towards that aspiration of well-being. I know that many people find that we are at a moment of great distress in the world, but we also have great possibilities. You know? We have never had as many possibilities of compassionate action as today. There has never been such awareness of how important it is, uh, human impact in the whole world, and how much we can come together to create these different perspectives of, of no life. You know? And by that, is also having the humility you know, of l- listening to other voices that possibly have other solutions that can contribute uh, and creating seriously a community that is inclusive, that is truly diverse. The problems that we're facing are truly diverse, right? So we can't face them with only one good-for-all formula. No, it's not like that. Nature doesn't work like that. Our Mother Earth is multifaceted, multidimensional, uh, and it's, it's very complex systems of relationality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then again, during Wendy, <laughs> we, are, we, we, we go cosmic. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> when we go indigenous, we, we go cosmic because how do we integrate all of it? And the marvel of it is that once we see it with all of this material, it makes all the sense. Yeah. No, it somehow makes all the sense. So, yeah, we, we are such spiritual beings. So beings of very subtle essences. No, we, we learn from these very ways of being in the body, being in, in the heart, you know, being in, in the mind. But then towards what I, I love um, explaining spirit in an indigenous perspective, like is honoring the animating principle of life, you know, like what brings us, what creates life towards flourishing, like a true possibility of planetary flourishing and how we bring that by that alignment you know, of action, intention, thought, affect that puts us into being together with a, an environmental community.
what you were saying about narratives and stories and kind of thinking about where do these mindsets come from? You know, particularly this mindset that you experienced when you were exposed to Western thought of being othered and separateness and all this dualistic thinking. And we see, I think, so much today, these different narratives are so prevalent and so um, insular, like they are developing uh, within themselves without any cross talk, you know, so there's becoming these kind of different realities almost is what it feels like, at least in the United States context. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on the reality of, of different narratives and different perspectives. Is it important that we all come to, to, to agreement, come to having the same um, or at least some of the same elements or narrative? Or how do you think about holding that kind of plurality, but then having agreement? Yeah, I think that also helps very much bringing back the story of the indigenous people's movement at the global level, because indigenous peoples are widely diverse. You know, they are around 5,000 indigenous groups all over the world living in around 90 countries. Even only the U.S. has 564 or 74 federally recognized tribes, right? So it's diverse. Each of these have a very distinct relationship with their lands from which their ontologies and epistemologies derive. So we cannot speak of like, oh, one single way of being. And yet there is certain agreements of reverence or honoring their lands and also their relationships around and the ancestry that creates a possibility of a container, you know? Uh, so that's why the indigenous groups as the plurality of, of indigenous peoples, focusing on a specific goal to find, you know, to reclaim, revitalize our wisdoms, start being participants in decisions that impact our lives and our territories. It was about coming together, you know? not in uniformity, because it's not about, oh, well, now everybody has to think the same. No, but rather we come together because we share a problem, you know? and we need to find solutions that are helping all of this diversity. So how do we do that? It's not going to be the same solutions that we're going to need in for our Arctic uh, relatives or for uh, relatives in the equator you know, or, or in the high mountains, you know, high altitude. So all of these different landscapes need different solutions, but we need community action. You know, we need international community action. So a collaboration and global policy from all of these states. So it is, yes, not about thinking all the same, but what is important is to listen to each of these individual needs and then find solutions that are geared to that kind of situation or problem. And so I think one of the greatest problems right now with the divisiveness that we face in the United States is that everybody wants to push their thinking towards the other, you know? Um, there's no place of safety for dialogue for either group. Uh, unfortunately, there is a tendency of shaming, certain of guilt, 
there's no real grounds for feeling safe enough to share stories or and then to start finding the humanity, you know, the shared human grounds on the other, and then to start finding solutions. There's none of that. You know? uh, there's, uh, the conflict is right away. So there's something missing really you know, in, in how we're coming together. Uh, so for that, I, I feel the great solution would be to bridge, you know, to bridge uh, different groups and systems. And bridging means that both are willing to listen and to listen in a space of safety, which is the most tricky part. Yeah. Because how can one trust when the other has been constantly abusing power or being uh, oppressive or <laughs> all of these systems no, that we talked earlier? Well, before that coming together, there has to be in both groups a practice you know, of, okay, what's the origin of all of these emotions and all of these ideas and all of these stories? The realization that those have been stories, right? So constructs, social, cultural constructs. And to let go of my benefit or my in-group benefit and start gearing towards the aspiration of a common well-being, of an environmental benefit. So that's why the coming together to tackle the climate urgency could be a great possibility of bringing together humanity, right? Because it's not anymore about these different groups. It's about, well, we need to come together because we have this great challenge that demands our collaborative solutions. So that place needs to be established again and again no, with, with safety, with accountability, with responsibility of action, and then the commitment or the willingness of coming together. It's not going to be easy, of course. As we know as, as contemplative practitioners, practice is also not easy. You know? And that's another thing that we need to bring back. Uh, one of the greatest traps of contemplative practice is the spiritual bypassing, right? Thinking that one by only sitting on the couch and, and sending meta, for example, is enough for things to change. And there hasn't been enough engagement, right, with the community or these sections that do not engage with the other, right? And we need to get out of that just as much as we start observing what is our own uh, part in, in this situation, you know, for the oppressive and then for the oppressed as well. You know? How do we empower voices to start uh, coming to, to express their own story? That most parts for people that are suffering intergenerational trauma, most times these are so hidden, you know? as we know, to the very genes, you know, that most times we aren't aware of what is causing our overwhelming experience. But I love to bring as well that, yes, there is intergenerational trauma, but there is intergenerational bliss. And I came to this from my own experience. My 
family and my peoples and my own personal story have been imbued with extreme instances of violence, land dispossession, kidnaps, murder, etc. Now, all mm. horror stories that we can imagine. But that kind of vulnerability wakes us to the fragility of life. You know, how fragile we all are. And so how much we also need to then care because every action that we do may have the impact on others. You know? So that how do then we create the possibility of compassion? And it has been also shown that people that have suffered more acute experiences become more able to deal with challenges later on and also are more willing to be collaborative and compassionate to the suffering of others, which is really striking. You know, one would think that having more resources makes people more generous, and it's the opposite. The less you have, the more you're willing to share, or the more you have been exposed to, to suffering, the more you are tending to the well-being of others. So that's when trauma turns to bliss. So it's not that this empowering, overwhelming facing of, of life challenges. Yes, we acknowledge them. It's not about bypassing. We see the seriousness of the trauma. We stay with it. We work with it. But then the possibility of using that raw material, compost it, so that then it creates new nourishment for a new life, a new possibility. And that's when the bliss comes, you know, by that opening of compassion, opening of community and collaboration, opening of awe and reverence, and ultimately that profound love for life. I love the the metaphor of composting, you know, these difficulties or these old ideas and because uh, it speaks to integration as opposed to just let's get rid of that and, you know, never look at it again or yeah. never use a piece of it. And it raises the idea that there's value in it somewhere that can be reused and like reborn into something better. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I love the bringing back the all these natural metaphors, you know, like bringing Mother Earth into our everyday living, into our, as we know, the performative quality of language. Like we know how much language creates our experience. You know? So if we bring Mother Nature in the way we speak, in the way we act, then we also realize that, yes, there is birth, you know, there is flourishing, but then there's also wilting and there is the transitioning. But that transition also gives life to the next iteration. 
So then there's again the spiral, right? Then it's a new regenerative power, right, of bringing again, but by intention, now by focusing on that aspiration, you know, of that collaborative, community, environmental, you know, planetary aspiration of honoring the animating principle of life, honoring spirit. You know? So by returning to how much we are nature, we are nature, you know, we are all offsprings of Mother Earth. You know? So if we treat each other like that, it's like, how can I water your experience, Wendy? You know? how, can I, how can you and I come together right now? How can we water our mind and life family audience, mm. you know, by, by our coming together and sharing these ideas so that we can move together you know, as a community? towards that aspiration of planetary flourishing. That's about it, no? And is there one formula? No, we have to talk about it, feel each other, you know, continually come back to how, what is working, what is not, where do we need more action? Where do we need more time of repose and, and reflection? And then again, return to engagement. Mm. I love your um, sensitivity to language and the way that language shapes our mind and then is, or it, you know, is constructing uh, our mind and then... Yeah, and how it, it, it comes to fruit, right? With, with action. Right. Because it's like, first it's the experience, all this embodiment, but then it's, oh, we are having a more constructed thought about it, but then it's going to come in action, no? But then how is this action going to benefit? And that it is not my benefit, no, but rather like, how can I be food for others? And at the same time, of course, keeping myself nourished so that I can be of better service. If I am a food that is not well cared, it's not going to be as beneficial as the other, no, as nourishing for the other. So it's, it's about it all. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember, um, so you you recently took part in our Summer Research Institute, which was on othering and belonging and becoming, which was so fantastic. So much fun. And you brought so much. Was, thank you for, for joining us. It was really powerful. And I remember you you were pushing back in a panel discussion on the use of the word uh, mechanism, you know, psychological mechanisms, <laughs> and the, which is so much a part of the language of science and reductionist thought and, you know, just viewing ourselves and the systems that we're embedded in as these separable, dissociable components that, that exist. And I really appreciate that, as we've just been saying, the importance of language and thinking of different ways to, um, to represent yeah. the reality of that interconnectedness. Um, I'm wondering also now, coming back on the spiral to, to the beginning when you were sharing um, your indigenous language and the importance of um, bringing, keeping those languages um, alive, and wondering differences that you've seen, maybe even in the structure of language between an indigenous language um, that you speak and in English. What's been your thoughts there? Yeah. Well, one of the beautiful aspects of indigenous languages, and then that's another thing that uh, that also brings the the similarities of indigenous language all over. And then, of course, uh, there are uh, around seven thousand languages spoken in the world. 70% of which are indigenous, mm. you know, like 4,000 of those are, are indigenous. But as I was telling you, sadly, 
almost half of those languages are at risk of extinction. So I don't know all of those languages, as you can imagine. But for many of the indigenous languages that I know, and from my own, there is a quality of performative. No, So it's languages are about action, mm. not so much about the nouns, but it's about how we are emerging and how we are acting. And you were talking about right now, I know about the mechanisms. And I really resist that kind of language because one, we are organic. No? We are beings that are responsive to every experience and phenomena that is having our environment. No? And at the same time, we are uh, influencing and impacting our, our environment. So it always changes. No, it will never be exactly the same as the mechanism. No, that and Western science, I think that's also one of its flaws. No, of expecting that because of certain observations and testings, then every time it's going to be mm -hmm. the same. Of course, now we know, no, with Western science knows of the influence that the observer has on right. phenomena. Right. So it's not really only uh, the phenomena itself that can objectively be seen, but it's also that subjective influence. So that's what brings the contemplative part. You no, know? Western science is about this third person. You know? It's like the observer and then the observed. But the contemplative brings also the subjective part. It's like, oh. I am being observed of my own experience. So I am this, the subject and the object. But then the indigenous brings the dialectic, you know, the, the second person of, oh, we are actually in a dialogue. You know, we are actually constantly influencing. And I know that fortunately, this is something that we're starting to bring into the, into the field. But it was also another of the flaws, no? another of the traps, thinking that, oh, we, we will be finding the same results over and over. And in indigenous science, which is a science, even though uh, Western systems are yet to fully embrace our indigenous methodologies, that's part of the work that I do to keep uh, pushing for the inclusion of uh, indigenous ways of knowing into academia. Um, but part of it is seeing the particularities of phenomena. Not only what repeats, but also what is missed, because that also creates a larger experience. And it's a systems experience. It's our observation of systems and relationships, not only of atomic events you know, or phenomena. So I think that those two aspects makes us more aware of the organic, different experiences that we are facing that happen to us. And that brings that possibility of being more aware of the interdependence of all these systems. You know? So it's um, we go back to the to the plurality of of experience. You know? So it's not only one viewpoint, even not anymore either. There's a plurality of that, and then there's a diversity of also points of view or perceptions mm -hmm. of what we are seeing. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is your work on indigenous science and bringing that into academia. Can you say more about what that looks like? Yes. So as you know, Western science 
with, with continuing and go or going back in the spiral of the conversation that we had a little while ago of who chooses or who decides uh, what is the truth, yes, right? Or like the systems of um, of understanding the world and Western scientific method was following systems of oppression and systems of um, colonial understanding of the world. You know? uh, as you very well know, these systems in its origins were also seeing that difference, even within human beings. And to this day, which to me is so very hard to understand, that to this day, uh, research has also shown that some people in the health system still think that there is a difference in perception of pain depending on ethnicity. Mm. And which, you know, that that are remnants or echoes of those times of thinking that, oh, are they even considered right, human yeah. <laughs> or the, the others? So uh, that creates that who has authority about understanding the yeah. world. And right now has been the West, no, the, the scientific method. The indigenous uh, way of, of seeing things, which is, as, as we were talking about, of um, observation of relationships, of systems, um, networks, of plurality, of mutual influence, they have not yet been quite accepted as a science. Yeah. So indigenous methodologies, ritual, storytelling, ceremonial work, and those are ways of also observing uh, uh, experience or phenomena, then making sense of it in a more symbolic, maybe metaphoric uh, way, and then also using it so to adapt to new experiences. But there, that's the difference. No, there's an adaptation. There's a, an assumption that things are going to be constantly changing, never the same. But you can learn from what uh, experiences have brought. No? So there is a movement within indigenous scholars to bring indigenous methodologies into academia. And for me, part of it is to broaden our understanding of science to include other systems you know, that are equally valid for understanding experience and making sense of how the world is. And, and also now with the environmental challenges that we can find solutions to the world from millenarian wisdoms of resilience, of adapting to different environmental either weather or changes in, of course, fire management, water management that can be maybe even life-saving for most species in our planet today. So I think part of the importance of bringing indigenous uh, epistemologies is the push for participatory action in the world, uh, inclusive ways of knowing. Uh, as you know, there's so much talk about diversity and equity. Uh, but most times it continues being within these structures that follow certain privileges. So, and I, I was saying, you no, know, the indigenous scholars, but in this country at least, indigenous youth have the largest dropout out of high school. 
And in terms of advanced degrees, 70, at least the, the latest report, says that 73% or so uh, of advanced degrees in the country go to white people. Then the next uh, is for Asian Americans at 12%, I think, 12 or 16%. And then 8% to people of African descent and 8% to Latinx and only 0.3% to indigenous scholars. Just to show, like, why is it that uh, certain systems continue to have the privilege and the decision you know, in, in academia. So part of it is we need to demand for more representation. As this country starts changing you know, and being much more diverse and inclusive, we need our students of the global majority to see themselves represented you know, as systems of authority, as voices of change, you know, as agents of transformation. Because that's when we start really finding the possibility of all these voices to contribute to solutions, not over and over the same voices that we know that have not been enough for what we are facing right now. You know? And I think there's a thirst for different knowledges. There is um, a willingness as well you know, of, of, of going back to that possibility of a global uh, planetary community, you know, because we are feeling you know, that the whole world is this epidemic of loneliness, you know, of despair, of uh, lack of community. And there's so much that we can learn from those communities that have adapted for millennia you know, and that also have cared for their environments and their lands in a way that nourish these different relationships. I just wanted to touch on, you spoke a lot about contemplative practice and the importance of those approaches uh, for awareness. And I know that you've done a lot of work teaching mindfulness and compassion in different contexts of bringing Indigenous perspective in. And I was just wondering if you could share what that looks like, particularly in Western contexts, um, yeah. the way that mindfulness and compassion has been adapted here. Uh, so yeah, how does that look? Yeah, well, when, when I started uh, getting deeper and deeper into um, the contemplative world, because that, as I said, that has uh, contemplation has been my way of living since I, I remember, you know, and probably of my family, probably of my peoples. Um, but as I came to the West and started speaking within this language, I realized that, well, I didn't see myself represented, you know, like I didn't see uh, anybody that looked like me or that would speak of the systems of other traditions that I knew. And so because that's my part of warrioress. <laughs> no, I started uh, protesting. You know? I started saying, like, we are missing something here. And at that time, like, the, this was like a few years ago, there was absolutely no talk, no word about indigenous then. Yeah. 
So I started bringing it up. And so my work is in the intersection of indigenous studies, contemplative studies and cultural psychology. And there's a lot of religious studies there. So right now I co-chair the indigenous religious traditions at the American Academy of Religion. Uh, but at, uh, at that time, I was still a, a student and I was, well, I need to bring, that's my commitment. No, I, I wanted to honor my lands and my lineages and, and bring this into the conversation because I also knew, I felt, I have learned in my own experience that they have been so helpful for the agency that I have right now, you know, the, the sense of also safety and serenity that, that I have, not that is there all the time, but I bring, and that also that can help others, you know, that, that can guide or, or orient or, or create that place of, of home for others. Um, so I brought the very first paper on indigenous contemplation back in the day, and then I created the very first panel on indigenous uh, wisdom also, I brought it uh, for the first time to Mind and Life a few years ago in the conference. And at that time, I remember um, all of these many voices no, of, of great wisdoms of our siblings of Tibet. Uh, and I felt like, wow, how am my voice going to be heard? But I also trust that it made sense. And because of that wisdom it would be received by, if it held, it was going to be received. And fortunately, that has been the case. You know, that there's something that uh, my voice is bringing uh, that contributes to the field, that helps advance the field, and we can create uh, richer conversations. You know? So that's where we are at at the moment. And I am excited to continue my work in indigenous contemplation. I'm in the process of writing my first book. Oh, great. And on, on precisely my indigenous contemplation and work more on this because I, I do uh, my professional career is on the concentration of the defense of the rights of indigenous peoples and the rights of Mother Earth. I also want to bring voices of indigenous contemplation at a global level. You know? So I've been networking and engaging with relatives of indigenous uh, wisdom groups from very different areas of the world so that I can bring that nuance. Because I, I, I came up with these two core systems of indigenous contemplation, which is kin relationality, you know, seeing uh, all relationships and all phenomena or like all living beings as skin and the other ecological belonging, which is being part of these larger systems, responsive systems of Mother Earth, and then responsibility and accountability. And of course, there's much more nuanced uh, definitions of these two core concepts, which uh, I'd love to go deeper in at some other time and that you will also find in the book. Yes, yes. But uh, I, I had a conversation uh, recently with a um, uh, scholar who was saying like, well, but if you already found the idea of kin relationality, why do you need to go to all these different places in the world? <laughs> and I was like, well, uh, it's like thinking that because compassion appears in all these different traditions, then 
we would need to be uh, looking into the different nuances or the different expressions of compassion in all of these stories uh, rather than just staying with one single system, right? And then it was like, oh, of course, makes sense. <laughs> so it's about then uh, looking into how, how does this uh, show up or manifest in different locations of indigenous peoples in the world with completely different landscapes, you know, like in the Arctic or in the high altitude or in the desert or in the rainforest and what can they say about our difference of contemplation no? and how can they say also about our differences of adaptation or possibilities you know, opportunity of, of adaptation especially with these challenges so it's about weaving you no know, weaving stories for a much more colorful rainbow tapestry that uh, allows the animating principle of life to keep flowing. Wonderful. Well, that feels like a really good place to leave it. And the time has been flying. But is there anything you want to say, kind of take home messages? Well, you know, I would love to finish with a poem. Please. Yeah, that'd be great. And it's a, I'll say it in the Maya Celta language, the indigenous Maya Celta language. And then I'll, I'll give you the translation into English, if that's okay. Wonderful. Okay. So uh, it says, Kushtaya. Kushtaya, Kushtaya, Kushtaya. Teshocholil kushinele. Yuunterlajele. Techa tohkele. Yaks kushtabes hocholil tesakinale. So te Love, love, love. The emptiness of being, of death, of birth. Love the emptiness of clarity and of the thickest mud. Love the lunar wisdom. Love the solar joy. And when the inklings of life appear hard and harsh and full of rifts, rejoice in the ecstatic bliss that burns in the openness of your very core. Beautiful. Gracias and thank you so much, dear Wendy. Thank you so much, Yuria. This has been fantastic. And thank you for bringing all of this wisdom into the world. Uh, thank you for being also part of 
bringing this, also weaving this and uh, creating platforms for our voices. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>